Good morning and welcome to Our American Heritage. I am Arch Hunter, the host of the program. Our American Heritage program where we explore in depth the American experience from its beginning to the present. And today we want to welcome back as our guest, Mr. Dave Stahl. So Dave, thank you for coming back and welcome back to our program. Thank you. Glad to be back and uh, look forward to continuing our discussion from last week. Yes. Uh, And Dave, again, if someone didn't listen last week, first of all, we're going to um, give them the merits for that. But share quickly your educational background and your military background, and we're going to get right back. We left off with a story that I just find fascinating. So share with our listeners, please, and we'll pick it right back up. Well, like I had indicated earlier, I grew up on a farm and ranch in central Washington back in the 60s. Graduated from high school, class of 1971. Military service. I have dual service, both Air Force and Navy. The large majority of my time having been spent in the Navy and been off of active duty now for, oh gosh, 30 plus years. But just recently, while on my 65th birthday, two years ago, I finally got released from my uh, commitment that that I have given, you know, some of the things that I had done. So, And your educational background, Dave? Both of my bachelor's degrees are from Central Washington University in Ellensburg, Washington. I have a, a degree in criminology, and then I have a degree in history. Done postgraduate work at a number of universities and whatnot around the United States, including at the Naval War College. And I'm currently working on a uh, master's degree in history through Utah State University here in our hometown of Logan, Utah. And tell our listeners, Dave, before you lived in Utah, how long you lived in Alaska? <laughs> well, we survived 23 winters up there, Arch. Uh, that, that's kind of how I look at it. You know, people say, how long did you live in, in Alaska? And you kind of measure it by, you know, how many winters you put in. Uh, but we were there for 23 years. I'm a retired teacher from up there. Moved down here to northern Utah to be closer to my wife's family. And I realized I wasn't very good at retirement. And so I came back and got a teaching job at an incredibly good school here in North Logan, Utah, called Intech Collegiate Academy. We are a public STEM charter school, and we were just awarded the number one high school ranking in the entire state of Utah this last year. And And I am the social studies department. I I was just going to ask you, and what's the quality of the social studies department at your school? Superb. Beyond, <laughs> beyond recognition. Yeah. <laughs> Far beyond that. <laughs> uh, we were, listeners, we were talking off air, Dave, so I, I find this humorous. Share with our listeners how long daylight is in Alaska when you go on daylight savings time. <laughs> Oh, my gosh. You know, yeah, we were chatting about, you know, how ridiculous it can get sometimes. And we always used to think in the summer, you know, we got 20 hours of daylight where we were there just about 100 miles outside of Anchorage. And, you know, if you go up, a, you go up across the Arctic Circle, obviously, uh, you know, you got 24 hours of daylight for about 62 days. And really, you're going to you're going to move the clocks ahead to get another hour of daylight when you've got 24 to begin with. Yeah. So that, uh, <laughs> but then on the flip side of that, you kind of look at it and you go this time of the year, you go, well, yeah, it's kind of nice to see the sun just kind of peak up for about, you know, two or three hours. And then by the time you go home from work, it'd be dark again. And so there's a couple months there, December and January, that uh, they they can get to be pretty brutal in terms of four or five hours of daylight for that period of time, too. Wow. So. Wow. But, you know, they have two seasons in Alaska. They have winter and then there's the Fourth of July weekend. <laughs> 
<laughs> I can believe it. And um, I don't know how, because I love hot weather, how people can take that, but a lot of people do. So Dave, you were sharing with us, the beginning to share with us a story that you were an exchange officer with the British. Yeah. Pick that story. One, is that a commonality that we had that exchange program? And what was significant difference did you see in their submarines compared to the, the American submarines? Well, yeah, we have a, a number of exchange programs that we do with our allies and uh, certainly with the British. And this was in the late 70s. I was a sonar uh, supervisor and they were putting in a new type of sonar. They came into the East Coast and my detailer, uh, I was you know, looking for a rotation at that point. And he said, well, I've got something temporary here. Would you be willing to uh, go over and help the Brits with the input of this sonar array? And I thought, oh my gosh, yeah, you know, that, that would be so much fun. And because I've been to England a couple of times before that, and I've always enjoyed the British approach to things. And uh, even though they can be kind of overbearing at times, but they certainly are great allies. And, and I had a great time helping out with that. I think, I hope I'm not offending any of your listeners, but one of the big differences between the British Navy and the American Navy is that there is a alcohol call each day on board their boats as opposed to it basically being banned on ours. And uh, so that, that, but they don't abuse it. And that was one of the things that I kind of had to get used to because that kind of caught me off guard a little bit. But I loved my time there. They treated me great. I still have friends that I am in contact with, a guy named Patrick Warley. Uh, on Facebook a lot, and, and Pat is former British sub-sailor and whatnot, so uh, I love it. And probably if I had to, to do all over again, I, I, my students often ask me, you know, Mr. Stahl, if you were going to retire and move outside the United States, where would you go? And it, it's real easy for me to make that decision. I absolutely would go back to Scotland in a heartbeat. The naval base that we had up there, incredible people. And uh, I, I love that part of the world. So, on our first program, Dave, when what year did you first enlist in the military? December of 1970. 1970, and that was really at one of the high points of Vietnam. And my curiosity question is, what motivated you to want to join the military right at you know the last couple of years of the Vietnam conflict? Well, as I had shared with you folks, uh, you know, last week, growing up in a small ranching community outside of Yakima, Washington, everybody knew everybody else. It was a very close-knit community. And unfortunately, we had had several of my class, some of them being my classmates, not necessarily in my particular class, but, you know, they were there at the high school at the same time that we were. Patriotism in our community was not defined by a 4th of July parade or a barbecue or, you know, those kinds of things. They were defined by, you know, looking yourself in the mirror and saying, you know, is this country worth fighting for? Is this, uh, you know, nation worth protecting? Uh, you know, those those kinds of sentiments that uh, unfortunately today seem to be, uh, you know, in question to a lot of people. Mm -hmm. But back then, honestly, Arch, I didn't even, I didn't even question it. The only question I had that my dad and I had when we were talking about it was whether it was going to be Air Force or Navy. And uh, my first choice was Navy. But as I had shared last week, the slots that I wanted were filled up at that point in time. And so I went ahead and enlisted in the Air Force. And I was on the swim team at our school. And 
So they were always looking for guys that were interested in uh, being pararescue swimmers. And for those of you that aren't familiar with what that is, uh, that's the guys that jump out of the Jolly Green Giant helicopters and, and got the pilots out of the water or South China Sea or, you know, quite often uh, rescued them if they'd been shot down over land. But they are the special forces for the Air Force. And my hat's off to those guys that do that still to this day. There's some of the, you know, everybody's heard of the Green Braves. Everybody's heard of the Navy SEALs, uh, you know. Unless you're in an Air Force community, you don't really know about the pararescue guys. But uh, I'm here to tell you, they, they go through a lot of the same training as the other special forces do. And my hat's off to them. Uh, I got hurt in the midst of the training, was not able to complete it. Ended up being discharged for a medical based on that injury. Uh, bummed around for a little while. Tried going to college a couple times. That didn't work out. Tried playing baseball. Uh, you know, things things just weren't clicking for me until finally uh, got hold of a Navy recruiter and uh, got an alternate appointment to the Naval Academy, and uh, we went from there. So that's how that all came about. So you were in and were discharged medically, and then you went back into the military a few years later. Yeah, after my shoulder had been uh, surgically repaired. And Dave, when you first went in, we had a, a mandatory draft, and when you went back, we had a voluntary military. <laughs> did, did you Very see? True. A, did you see a lot of differences in our military from your first stint to your second stint? Yeah, I think that uh, in the time of the draft. And it was kind of interesting because <laughs> I, I often look back on that because when I was going through my training and, and whatnot, my draft number, my draft year came up and my birth date was the 23rd number selected. And the letter S that year was the first letter selected. Wow. And so there, there wasn't a whole lot of doubt. <laughs> there wouldn't have been a whole lot of doubt as to what was going to happen if I hadn't have already been in. But d during the draft time, Everybody that was there, or at least the majority of the guys that I ran across, they didn't necessarily enjoy it. They didn't necessarily want to be there, but they understood the reason for being there. Yeah. I've often thought that there was a camaraderie that came about because of that. There was, there was a brotherhood that came about because of that. You know, having watched uh, Dick Winters and, and those guys that were in the 101st Airborne and, and whatnot, uh, you know, a band of brothers. When you've gone through those kinds of things together, I don't care how old you get, um, to the day you die, you will always have that brotherhood with those men that you did that with. And that's not to say that that's not the case today. But I hope that I'm not going to offend too many people here. And let me just wax political for a moment, if I could, Arch. Um but today, I have a real problem with the volunteer military, not because of the fact that they are volunteering. My hat's off to them. They do a hell of a job. But I am sick to death of politicians that send our young men and women mm -hmm. overseas in harm's way. And if it's that important for us to be there, then it should be that important for everybody to be participating not leaving it up to kids dangling college money in front of them or job training in front of them because they can't get it somewhere else. This so-called war on terrorism, well, if they're that big of a threat, then let's get with it. And that's one of the things that drove me nuts about Vietnam. You know, either, well, I, I, I won't say what I wanted to say there because you'd have to edit it out. Um, <laughs> either do it or don't do it. Right. Uh, you know, and, and if you're going to do it, then don't do it half-assed. Do it 
all the way. Mm-hmm. You know, go. You know, it, it, there's an old saying in the military: it pays to be a winner. And I know that in special forces, you ask any Navy SEAL what second place is, they'll tell you that's first loser. I don't play to lose. Right. Right. We shouldn't either. Dave, so okay, you, I'm off my bandbox. Okay, that, no, that, that's what this program is all about, and that's why we have people on to express their feelings and opinions, and it's needful to see that and understand that. Do you see a major difference in our military today than when you were serving in the military? Yeah, I do. I, I see way too much, I don't know what the best word to describe it is, uh, people are too too concerned about their careers, getting their tickets punched to move up and advance. And they're, they're not willing to make the hard decisions, the right decisions that need to be made and then stand by those decisions. It seems like in today's military, there's way too much political correctness, if you will. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I take a look at presidents since both during when I was in and since then, the types of relationships that they've had with the military. and I can tell you that there's a, a heck of a difference that has happened over the last 50 years in terms of having commanders in chief who, in my opinion, and I'm, it's, it's interesting that you should ask this right now because I'm just finishing up my first trimester government class today. And one of the things that I've told my students when they ask me, well, what do you think should be one of the requirements to be president of the United States? And I said, if it was up to me, I'd add to a constitutional amendment that you have to be a veteran. Wow. Yeah. Uh, you know, don't play the political game of sending young men and women into harm's way if you haven't walked the walk. And uh, I, I think that that's probably what I see the most. We have way too many senior leaders in our military who have never really had to, to walk the walk. And uh, when I was in earlier, you know, in, in the late Vietnam era, you know, we still had guys that had been in World War II. We yes, we had yeah. leaders that had been in Korea. You know, they knew what it was to fight a guerrilla war. They knew what it was to send men and women into harm's way. Uh, and that's not to say that we don't have some that are there today. But, you know, your question was, do I see a big difference? And the answer is, yes, I do. Yeah. Huh. Who was the highest ranking officer that you ever came in contact with? Your career. <laughs> <laughs> oh, this this is a no-brainer. This is absolutely a no-brainer. I was standing atop side watch on board a missile submarine, and we had another boat that was coming in off of patrol early because they had missed some signals to uh, for practice missile launches, and that's absolutely a career ender for the officers involved. And so when they came alongside of us, alongside the tender there, looked up on the quarter deck of the tender and there was a bunch of Marines up there and they were locked and loaded. And I thought, holy cow, you know, what? what's this all about? I mean, you know, security is tight when boats are coming in and out of, of yeah. harbor, but you, you, you normally don't see, uh, you know, Marines locked and loaded standing up on the quarter deck. And then I saw God himself of the U.S. Navy in civilian clothes, which he was inclined to wear quite often, coming down across and he walked across the brow onto the deck of our submarine. And uh, I had to I had to stop him, even though he was not in uniform. 
and uh, it was Admiral Hyman G. Rickover. Wow. <laughs> and Rickover was not a happy camper that day. Not. <laughs> uh, he sent his uh, chief of staff down, and about 20 minutes later, three of the officers and probably half a dozen of the enlisted guys came up, and they were in handcuffs. And uh, they were on their way, ultimately, to uh, Portsmouth Naval Prison because they had been, uh, should we say, uh, partaking of the friendly weed uh-huh. uh, at at sea and had missed, I think the rumor was they had missed three practice missile launches. Oh. Now, imagine what, what had happened if that would have been, in you know, for real, if the flag yeah. had gone yeah. up for real. Uh, so yeah, you know, that, that was my highest ranking personnel that I ever met. And it, believe me, it didn't get a whole lot higher than that, oh, I know. uh, in the U S Navy. <laughs> that's, that's pretty close to the Mount Olympus. <laughs> After your, your... Yeah, that's pretty close to shaking hands with St. Peter in terms of, you know, where you're headed next. So, yeah. I, Dave, I remember my, my father was in the Philippines during World War II. And one day he was standing there and, 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 um, General MacArthur, came by and my father said he was more scared of General MacArthur walking by than he was going out on patrol against the Japanese. Not that he wasn't scared of the Japanese, but when MacArthur walked by, I can imagine, you know, the, the feeling that he would have as a, a someone in the military of low rank. How were you yeah. treated, you know, after your first stint in the military during the Vietnam era, when you were discharged because of medical issues, were you mistreated by people as so many of the military were when they came home from Vietnam or, or during that era, during the Vietnam era? you experience any of that? You know, I, I was pretty much spared that. I can remember a, a few instances where comments were made. Um but in terms of you know physical confrontations or or any of those kinds of things i i can only remember one i can only remember one incident uh and it took place at SeaTac international airport where there was anything that even remotely came close to that okay. um so i i mean i know it happened i i know people that it happened to but in terms of people spitting on me or you know i i remember i had a couple of people, uh, when they saw my submarine dolphins and whatnot uh, in the Navy, they uh, they referred to us as, as referred to me as a steely-eyed baby killer of the deep. No, uh, um, you know, and I, I just I just looked at them and just had to turn around, and walk away before oh, I you know, yeah, basically ripped their head off. So, yeah. So, how, Dave, but how, you know, it, it just it was what it was. So. Yeah. After your two stints in the military. Did that change any of your love or feelings for our nation? And if so, in what ways has your thinking or your feelings towards our country? Because I know you're a patriot. I know you love our country. We, we spend a lot of time talking back and forth. But your military experience, did that change your thinking of America in any way? And, and if it did, how did it? Oh, man, that's a great question. Um, you know, I, I think it. It gave me even more of an appreciation for what my father and and uh, my uncles and you know my grandfathers had done. Um, my family's military commitment and service to this country goes back to the French and Indian War. Wow. Uh, 
Um, I have a lot of relatives there in Pennsylvania, in fact. Uh, in fact, the last name Stull, S-T-U-L-L, is a very uh, common uh, name, especially out in the western part of the state there. But that's that's where we got our start, uh, late 1600s, early 1700s. So I, I've always had an appreciation for this country. I've always felt that, and I think part of that too, Arch, is the fact that I've been very blessed in my lifetime. I've been in all 50 states. I've been in 39 foreign countries. My dad, uh, when the harvest was over in the fall and we had the cattle up into the, off the uh, summer range, he believed that there was uh, a lot more to an education than being just in a classroom. And so he would take my brothers and sisters and I and we would, and mom, and, and we would take off for about six weeks and we'd travel all over the world. And of course we had to submit our lessons, <laughs> you know, every Friday. I remember, you know, stopping in different post offices and whatnot. Um, and then in the early sixties, I was fortunate enough to experience uh, communism up, up tight and personal. And uh, so I, I never lost track of what the people in Poland were going through at the very height of the Cold War. That has had a lifelong impact on me. So I, I think, if anything, my military time has just reinforced my love for this country. I tell my students that, you know, you don't necessarily have to love the people that are in office, but it's incredibly important to respect the office itself. Mm -hmm. uh, and if you think that something's wrong or you don't think that something's going the way it should be, you have the right to voice your complaints. You have the right to better yet get off your uh, your dead butt and go out and try to make things better, you know, run for office, uh, you know, be, be a volunteer. Uh, you know, when I stop and, and I here in Utah, we have a number of homeless people. And so one of the things that I ask my students to do uh, is to do 20 hours of community service in the semester that they have government with me. And, uh, you know, they come away with a much better appreciation, I think, of just how fortunate we are yeah. to live in a country where, you know, where, where you can tell somebody right where to get off right. if they're a politician. Uh, you know, I, <laughs> when I saw what China had done and, you know, in Hong Kong this week, mm -hmm. you know, it, it just reinforces that to me. And, you know, I mean, I'm almost 70 years old and uh, I, I got to be honest with you, and I'm not looking for a pat on the back or to be modeling or, you know, overly sentimental. But there's still a tear that comes to my eye when I see a flag going up at uh, at four o'clock in the afternoon or coming yeah. down for retreat or, uh, you know, going uh, going to the ballpark, for example, you know, putting mm -hmm. it back into the baseball realm, uh, you know, standing out there and uh, listening to the to the national anthem. I think one of the most chilling moments for me in that aspect was after 9-11 yes, uh, yes. at the World Series there in Yankee Stadium. I, I, I don't care if I live to be 150 years old. I will never forget how I felt. And, and I, I just, I sat there in front of my TV and my wife said, what's the matter? And I said, it's okay, I'll be all right. But, yeah. you know, I just, tears were just coming down my eyes. Yeah. It's, you know, uh, well, Dave, I'm that sorry, song Dave. proud. That song, that song proud to be an American is probably one of my favorite ones. 
Thank you. Well, unfortunately, again, we are, listeners, Dave, we are out of time. This time just goes so quickly. So again, we all want to thank you for your service to our country. We want to thank you for being an educator and, and teaching these kids. God bless you for your service to our nation and your love for our nation and for teaching those kids. And again, Dave, thank you for coming and, and sharing these past two programs with us. Arch, it's been a pleasure and an honor. And uh, any time that you want to have me back, I will gladly do yes, it, my friend. We have a lot more to talk about. So again, we want to thank you for coming. So listeners, this is WFYL 1180 AM, Working for Your Liberty. 